I'm glad you're with me, so let's take our Bibles and let's do our Bible study here for the rest of this morning service. Let's jump to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, you have those notes that we sent you ahead of time, and trust that you'll follow along as what we go through. There's many people who make predictions about a lot of different events. Let me illustrate a couple of those. Edwin Drake, back in the 1800s, he was predicting that they could go out and they could dig dig for oil, and so he was trying to recruit people to get involved with his oil rigging business. And he wrote to one individual who wrote back in response to his request to become his manager. He said, drill for oil? You mean drill into the ground to try to find oil? You're absolutely crazy. The man didn't believe there was even the possibility of doing that. Here's one. Lieutenant Joseph Ives reporting to the military after he had explored and visited the Grand Canyon for the first time made this comment. He says, ours has been the first and doubtless will be the last to visit this profitless locality. He got it wrong. Here's somebody observing about that telephone business when it was first being invented. Western Union internal memo said this, the telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. It is inherently of no value to us. Oh, if they could only see what we do with the phones in this day and age. U.S. publication, Business Week, and put out an article talking in 1968, talking about Japanese automakers and how they would ever impact the United States auto market. They wrote this, with over 50 foreign cars already on sale here, the Japanese auto industry isn't likely to carve out a big slice of the U.S. market. Whoa, they were wrong. And then we have this, Ken Olson, who is the founder of Digital Incorporation, in 1977 made a comment about home computers. He said there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Well, we know right now how important they are for us to even to communicate. But one of the worst is 1943. Gentleman Thomas Watson, chairman of the IBM board, he, in discussing with his board, made this public statement when it came to computers. I think there is a world market for maybe five computers in total. Amazing how some people read the events, look at different uh, items around them, and then make such terrible, terrible conclusions about the future. Well, Jesus is talking about the future. Mark chapter 13. And he is not making a mistake. In fact, in Mark chapter 13, which is the longest section of teaching recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking about future events. And in the second half of the chapter, he primarily deals with what we are going to call the second coming of Jesus. Christ. And so as he's going along, I mentioned this already in the first session, it's the Passion Week. It is that Tuesday evening, he goes out on the Mount of Olives where they apparently are camping out night by night and then returning to Jerusalem like they did Sunday and then Monday and now Tuesday evening. And as Jesus goes up there, he starts speaking about his second coming. But we already saw moments ago that before he deals with the second coming, he talks about what it's going to be like just before his second coming. And we made these quick observations that it's going to be a period filled with growing troubles around the world. That includes false religions. It includes wars and rumors of war, earthquakes, famines, pestilences. It includes an ever-increasing persecution of Christians that we talked about in the last session. It's going to be something that is, as we mentioned last session, it's going to be ever-increasing as those years go by. Remember the idea of birth pangs, the beginning of sorrows mentioned in verse 8? They literally, the word sorrows means 
laboring for a woman. It's just going to increase as the labors just intensify. It's going to be worldwide, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in diverse places. So all of these afflictions are going to be universal. Pandemic. It's going to be worse for the Jews than anybody else. Jesus warned them, when you see this, flee, get out of Judea. And then in verse 19, we looked at moments ago, it's going to be the most troublesome time in all of human history. Now, one of the questions that comes up frequently is, and you may be thinking this morning, and maybe this is the first time you've been exposed to some of this truth about prophecy, and you say, well, we be there. Are we there right now? Is this, a, this pandemic one of those events that's foretold? The answer to the question, will we be there, is this. Absolutely, positively, no. No, we believers are not going to live in that time period. We are not going to be afflicted by it. If we have put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, we read in several passages, like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. You can look it up for yourself later on. But let me quote one verse. It's talking about in this text about Antichrist coming and how he's going to deceive people and how he'll make himself to be the universal leader. And it makes the comment that he will not be revealed until he that holds back sin is taken out of the way. Now our question has to be, who is the he that holds back sin? There are three possibilities. The possibilities of whoever in Scripture, whoever in, in our time, holds back sin. Well, we know it's not Satan. We know it's not the world. They propagate. They promote sin. There are only three possible uh, individuals or groups, and that is, one, the Holy Spirit. That's part of his job that Jesus predicted that when he would come, the comforter would convict the world. He would, he would retain or hold back sin. Or the people that he's living in, the believers, you and me, who are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world in that sense that we are the light that shines in this present world, showing Jesus Christ. Or the third possibility is both together. That all of a sudden we're taken away with the Holy Spirit in us and we're removed. And after that removal from this earth, then Antichrist will be revealed by signing that covenant. Now this complements what Paul had written in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which in the, in the first epistle, second he talks about Antichrist and that there's, there's, he won't be revealed until the hinderer of sin is removed. In the previous epistle, he talked about all of a sudden Jesus Christ coming in the clouds and removing all those upon the earth who are believers in a sudden moment, um, quick fashion, taking them, snatching them from this world and meeting them in the clouds in the air and taking them back to heaven. We understand that biblical teaching to be the, the event being the rapture. And so that fits perfectly with what Paul has written and, and said. And it also matches what's given in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. In this text, he's talking to the church and he says, I will keep you out of the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Notice several things. The idea is Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep you out of, not I'm going to walk through you and be in the fiery den, the lion's den or the fiery furnace with you. Rather, we are going to be kept away from what is it? That set period of time, the hour, he says, a predetermined time that those people had already heard about, and it's a period of temptation, great troubles, great calamities is the word, and so he says something that is universal upon the world, well, we know there is only one event that is of such tremendous 
uh, trouble and tribulation and that is the tribulation that's going to be universal and it serves as a period of time where he will try or literally the word is judge them and experience the judgment of God upon all the people of the earth. Now what that teaches us is that Jesus matches in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13, exactly what we're talking about here, the tribulation period, the worst time that is universal upon all people as a means of judgment. It tells me that we as true followers, when we put all these passages together, we are going to be raptured before the tribulation begins. We will not be here. We will not experience it. We will be removed before Antichrist gets rolling and all these problems. Which leads me to this conclusion as well. This pandemic does not mean we're living in the tribulation. Some of you have expressed concern. Are we living in that tribulation, that terrible time? No. It's going to be far worse than what's happening with this pandemic. In fact, the revelation tells us that in that time period, in the first half, a quarter of the people will die, and then in the second half, a third of the people will die. We are not even scratching the surface by comparison. We are not in the tribulation. We will not be in the tribulation that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 13. But what he does tell us in Mark chapter 13 is he tells us that not only is it a period of trouble, it is a time of great evangelism efforts. That a lot of people are going to hear the gospel, they're going to respond to the gospel, and we read in Revelation 6 how many of them who suffered for the faith that they're going to be standing with the Lord at some time through. Now, the, the, the evangelism is going to take place worldwide. If you look at the passage in chapter 13, verse 10, it talks about published among all nations. And so there will be worldwide evangelistic ta efforts taking place. It will be done in many ways. Now you might be wondering, how is it possible that so many people will hear the gospel if the Christians were taken out ahead of time? Good question. Let me answer it. The Bible tells us that there will be 144,000 appointed, anointed preachers, Jewish in background, that will go around the world preaching the gospel. They are mentioned in chapter 7 and chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. It also tells us two new prophets who have miraculous powers will show up during that tribulation time and they will be preaching the word of God, whether it be Elijah and Moses or whoever, we don't know, but there will be two new prophets. We also know that according to Revelation chapter 14 verse 6, I saw another angel fly, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue. God is going to have his angels angels sharing the word of God with people around the world. We also know that many who get saved during this time period will be sharing their, God, their testimony. Revelation chapter 6, look it up, verse 9, that they will have died for their testimony. But there's another way that people will hear the gospel and during that time, and it could be you. You could be sharing the gospel. Not th I'm not saying you're going to live in that time period. You're going to be taken away if you're born again. But you might leave some recording, like the testimonies we recorded and share with you and others that are coming in that we'll share in the weeks ahead. You might make a recording so that those who are left behind can hear from you where you're at and how you have put your faith in Christ and beg them to do the likewise. Maybe you want to write letters. Letters that could be distributed after you have finished your work here on earth. But you can take opportunity to share the gospel. I'm sure God will use that in a mighty way as you share. But let's go back to the idea there will be great evangelistic efforts all over despite the opposition and persecution that is going to be ever increasing during that time period that we talked about in the last session 
and read that, in, in that passage of Scripture. And what strikes me is the thought that if the Word of God is going out during that time of intense per- persecution, then the sharing of the Word of God can and should be done in any culture at any time. It strikes me that persecution doesn't excuse us from witnessing. It strikes me that, that persecution will enhance, be fertilizer to the witnessing. That in countries where persecution has happened, will happen, that witnessing and giving out the gospel may even become more prolific. Why? It weeds out faulty, fickle believers. Those who have a terrible testimony that often become a stumbling block. That persecution gives opportunities for bold witness, dramatic witness, as people hold to the faith and others see that boldness, just like they did in Acts, where they marveled at the believers... The, the apostles, that they had been with Jesus just by the way they conducted themselves. It creates an atmosphere of searching. For those who are not born again, for those in that time period, many times we hear of peoples in eras of persecution wondering, what is the truth? What about me? What if, what if, the, if society turned against me? Uh, what do I do in such chaotic environments, which usually is associated with persecution, that many of the people who aren't believers become seekers, searching, hungering to find out real truth under a, a system or a regime that is also giving them problems in other areas of their life. So persecution is not a reason, an excuse to not witness in fact, we should be witnessing on a regular basis because, <coughs> excuse me, God promises to personally assist his children during this time period. Now we know that, as we read already in verse 11, that the Holy Spirit will give them words to say. Well, Jesus, after this, on Friday, when he is, I'm sorry, Thursday, when he is talking to his disciples in the Last Supper, he says to them again how the Holy Spirit will come and give you words to say and boldness to be able to say it. And so what it teaches me is this. If God can and will save souls during the tribulation period, when it's such a difficult time, then surely he can save souls now. Surely people can get born again now. And it teaches me if God will assist witnesses in that time period, then it's really easy for him to surely assist us in our witnessing now. What it teaches me, if believers will share the gospel in a time period where there is so much persecution, then our hats off to those believers, but also the challenge, we should be doing it right now. We should be taking opportunities, even in a pandemic, to get out the gospel to use some literature, to use some opportunities to take our foundation Bible studies and sit down and talk with relatives and work through that, to set up even through Zoom or Skype or some other means to be able to share your faith with loved ones, friends, co-workers who right now may be fearful. They may be wondering, what does this mean? What's going to happen next? Some losing jobs, some wondering. You can be a light in a dark time by sharing your faith with those individuals. But there is another feature. Not only is it a period of trouble in that tribulation, an evangelistic time, but let's give you the feature that Jesus stresses in the second half. It will culminate 
it will end, it will lead to the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. We read the passage here just moments ago in our previous session where it says, in those days, verse 24, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then shall he send his angels and shall gather together together his elect from the four winds from the uttermost part of the earth even to the uttermost part of heaven. Uh, invite you. Join me in Matthew chapter 24. The parallel passage, Mark uh, wrote from his perspective and what he was told. Matthew writes and records similar conversation that he had with Jesus and heard that very evening and gives us a little bit more detail. He writes in Matthew 24, For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I'm in Matthew 24, verse 28. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven even unto the other. Other. What we learn from all that, putting it together, is that the second coming of Christ is a whole lot different than his first coming. He came in humility. He came where, where he was a babe, where he was in a, born in a, in a manger setting. This time he'll come in power full adult with all of his glory and his power, his angels as his accompaniment. And here he comes on the second time with a profound impact upon creation, that the mountains will be moved and the stars out of place, that his coming is disturbing all of the universe and putting everything into, a, into an uproar from its norm. We, he'll be seen by everyone. Only a few visited Jesus when he first came. Only a few bothered like the shepherds and the wise men in that first time. But this time he'll be seen by all and guaranteed every knee shall bow when he comes the second time. This time we also learn that he will gather his elect from all over. That he's going to collect them. All of those Jewish believers as well as any other believers. My understanding he will gather them and bring them to himself and then renovate planet earth and go into a period of judgment, which brings us to an idea that he will bring a time of accountability. His first time he did not come to judge and to, to uh, bring men before him to answer for their sin, but the second time he will. That's alluded to in this parable where he talks in verse 34 about a son of man is like a man taking a far journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, to every man his work, commanded the porter to watch, and then he comes back at an unknown time. And what does he do? He's going to ask them for accountability. Matthew 25 gives us an entire chapter of parallel parables about that idea that when the master returns, he's going to ask them, what did you do with the one talent, the five talents, the ten talents? And so it'll be a period when he comes the second time that he's going to have a period of judgment and, and bringing people into investigation. But this is the most, most uh, emphatic aspect that's given in this chapter. 
In this chapter, if there's one lesson that he wants the people, his audience to listen to, the disciples then and us now, looking at Mark 13, it is this idea that the exact time of his return is unknown. He mentions it. Here in this passage, as he wraps up, he says in verse 33, watch, pray, you know not when the time is. He mentions it specifically in verse 32, of the hour and the day, you don't know. He mentions it in the parables about the Son of Man being like the, wise, the man who, businessman who leaves. And then he comes back because verse 35, you know not when the master of the house comes at evening or midnight or in the morning when the cock is crowing or later on in that morning after the sun is risen. And then he makes the comment about not knowing lest suddenly coming he find you sleeping. Watch. Be ready. <coughs> Excuse me. He's talking about it. It's totally unknown. Now, with that in mind, can I pause for a moment? And may I bring in a second truth or bring together what we've already mentioned here this morning about different events. When you go to the New Testament after Mark 13 and start putting together all these different references of what Jesus said about his second coming and then what Paul and others wrote about his future coming, future after he ascended up into heaven, there's, there's, a, there's a truth we can't get away from. That when we talk about Jesus returning, Jesus coming again, there are two phases of Jesus coming again. That he's going to, Old Testament, frequently talked about the coming of the Lord, coming of the Lord, coming of the Lord. People didn't understand it, but there was two comings. One as a babe in a manger, and one in power and glory. Now when we talk about his coming again to us in this era, we have to put the passages together and we learn, yeah, you know what? There's also two parts of his future coming again. We go through a lot of texts and we come to the conclusion that there's a rapture when he will come to the clouds, catch his saints up into meet him in the air and go back to heaven. We read about another coming mention that he will come to the Mount of Olives. He will stay here. He will then establish his kingdom. And so when we compare all these passages, we have to come to the conclusion. It's very clear, or, or there's contradictions in the Bible, but it's, uh, and we don't accept that. It's very clear there's two phases to this coming. Now, let me show you a chart that we've shared with you before. You just read through how one coming he talks about to earth, one to clouds. One he stays, one he returns to heaven. One he judges the lost, one he's judging believers. One he's the king, one he comes as the bridegroom. One he rescues Israel, one he rescues the church. We have as well, one he descends with angels and saints. One he's taking the saints back to heaven. One he's focusing on the Jews. One he's focusing on the, the bride. One he's seen by everyone. The other one, it's very sudden and the world doesn't see. There's many signs before his coming to earth. There's no signs before the rapture. There's one that's spoken of throughout scripture, but 1 Thessalonians, where we get the first information about the rapture, says it's a mystery, something that's not been revealed before. So our conclusion, there are two phases. When he's talking here about be ready, watch, we know in this context it specifically is talking about his coming to earth. But for you and I who are believers, the same thing is true. Watch, be ready, because we don't know when that second coming, uh, that rapture is. L let me put it this way. Two phases to the coming. They are, they are different and yet they are similar in these two facts. Both of them are future to us. 
and we don't know the exact time of either the rapture or the people living in the tribulation don't know the exact time when he will come the second time to earth. And that is highlighted in this text repeatedly that his coming is unknown. His, his return is just nobody knows the time. In fact, the one verse that he really stresses it is verse 32. But of that day and that hour knows no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Dissecting the verse, watch what he's telling us. Some profound truth that the when of his future coming is known by God the Father. That's very clear. The Father knows. So God the Father knows. The when is not known by the angels. Think this through. The angels are very close to God. The angels are these glorious creatures, these powerful creatures. They reside in heaven. They carry his messages all over. And in the tribulation period especially, they're going to be doing the judgments. They're going to be preaching the gospel. They reveal the heavenly truths. They're in contact with God regularly. And yet they don't know when Christ will return. Let me add something else to it from this text that may be shocking to you. The when of Christ's return, he himself doesn't know. He makes it clear. He says, of that day and uh, no man knows, need not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son. Now that may shock you. That may just throw you for a loop right now. That may cause you to all of a sudden sit up from that recliner and say, what? Or gag on your eggs. How does Jesus not know something? How, is that a con No, no contradiction. No conflict. It's a statement that Jesus made that he doesn't know when he's coming the second time. How? Well, there's two possible explanations that fit into our theology. One is due to his incarnation. That this is, at this moment, Jesus is expressing that in my humanity, remember he's totally God, totally human. In my humanity, I am restricted from that tidbit of knowledge. Now you do know that even though Jesus was fully God, he did at times have restrictions, human restrictions, that he didn't employ his godness, his god abilities at all opportunities. He even says, they took upon himself the form of man, and with that as a child, having that human form, he was limited like we are. Luke 2 talks about as a child, he increased in wisdom. That's emphasizing his incarnation, his human portion that he had to learn. At times he hungered. God doesn't hunger. He thirsted. God doesn't thirst. But Jesus in his humanity had our limitations where he had to sleep, where he had the experience of pain, where he's, he's you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's thirsting and he's suffering and he's agonizing. He's weeping in the garden because of that sorrow. Uh, in fact, he died. In his incarnation, he experienced what we as humanity experience, death. So there's one explanation of this passage is Jesus didn't know because in his humanity that was one aspect that he had to experience one tidbit of knowledge that was not given to him by the Father and that is because of his humanness he didn't know. And yet I remind you in this very text he's predicting a whole lot of other information. That he knew a whole lot of other details. Which gets me to think about another thought here. Could it be not just his incarnation but could there be another biblical reason why he didn't know. And that is because of his submission. His submission to the Father. There are many passages that talk about the Son 
the Father. And we know that in a trinity they're one, and yet they're distinct. And there are times where the Son, in his distinctiveness, was totally submissive to the Father. In that sense, we find it time and again. Jesus was led. He didn't operate on his own. In his submission, he allowed himself to be led by the Father, by the Spirit, into the wilderness. We know that Jesus prayed, Thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. An aspect of submission. We read that he humbled himself to become obedient unto death, even the cross. We read multiple times in Scripture, my meat, that which satisfies me is to do the will of Him that sent me and to do His work. Not my own, but I'm submissive to Him. I came not from heaven to do my own will, but the will of Him that sent me. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but He that sent me is true. I speak to the world those things which I have heard of Him. I'm his messenger, his spokesman. I do always those things that please him. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. And so there's this aspect that however it reconciles, we don't fully understand because we don't fully understand the Trinity. But Jesus was submissive to the Father. And in his submission, he did what the will of the Father was, though he was totally God. He, in his submission, relinquished at moments his own will, to the fathers. And is this a moment where Jesus just was showing his submission that the father didn't share this with him? And that was so. And he was perfectly content not to know. That is an amazing thought. That Jesus, who knew so very much, didn't know one, t- one aspect that affected him and affects us or the world ahead, and yet he trusted his Father completely, fully, to do what is right and to follow him and to just be perfectly content without knowing that one feature of the future. Man, that's, that kind of smacks in our face, doesn't it? That challenges us because we, in our day and age, this one thing is true. The more information that we seem to gather and have at our disposal, the more we want or think we should know. The more that we say, oh, hey, I'm learning about so-and-so's life, the more we think they should share about their life. The more that we have you know, a computer or a book that gives us information, the faster we want that computer to speed up so that it can give us even more information. The more that the, the, they tell us about this virus, the more we want to know. We get like the reporters that are constantly asking the president and his staff the same questions repeatedly in all of those different, those different moments where they give reports and they keep on asking, keep on asking. They want, they want him to be, and the, the officials, to be so specific and answer every one of their questions. Are we content without knowing all of God's plans for us? Are you content to know that even though you're laid off, your job has but God is going to provide? Are you content with saying, hey, listen, we're all at home, and here we are, we have to do this homeschooling thing, and when will the kids go back to school? God, you got to let me know, or I'm going to lose my sanity. (laughs) We, We need to have a spirit of contentment. Will you trust the Lord to be in control of future events of which you don't have all the details? We don't have all the knowledge. This was a challenge for me. In the last few weeks to say, okay, no missions conference. No being able to get together 
And in my spirit, I fought against that, but it just comes to a point where God is God. He's in control. He knows what he's doing, and whatever he is doing, he is working all things together for good. We just need to trust him the way the Son trusted the Father. And so we know that when we go back to that idea Jesus didn't know. Can I add one other group of people that don't know? You and I don't know when he's coming back. Nobody here on earth knows when he's coming back. He makes it very clear in this text, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. And yet, you go on the internet, you find people after people, and we've seen them in the last few years, but just bring up on the internet, just for your, just to see if you will see that 2021 is being suggested, 2023 is being suggested, and different preachers are giving different reasons, and yet it's been proven time and time again that all these prophecies are wrong. Nobody knows when he's coming back. The rapture is not definitive in, our, in, in, a, in a way that we can make a schedule, nor is his second coming at the end of the tribulation. There is, a, there is an aspect that we don't know, and we need to be satisfied without knowing. And I ask myself, why did God not tell us this? Why did God say, I'm going to keep this tidbit of knowledge away from you? What happened if God would tell us the date of the rapture? How would that affect us? I fear that if all of a sudden I knew when the rapture would take place, then I'd procrastinate. Then I'd put off some of the service that I should be doing for Christ and say, well, I'll wait until that final week, just like the way I used to put off term papers or the way I put off some of the last-minute things we're supposed to do. And I think I'm in good company that a lot of us, if we knew the time, we'd procrastinate. Or maybe we'd become so preoccupied like the Thessalonians that all of a sudden we, we would stop working and providing and doing what we're supposed to doing. Or maybe we'd become proud and arrogant that we've got truth and nobody else. Whatever the reason, God in his great wisdom said, I'm not telling you. I am not telling you exactly when I'm coming back. And he says, verse 33, you know not when the time is, And he describes it again, as we read already, like a parable of a businessman leaning and going on a journey. And the the lesson is in verse 35, you know not when the master of the house comes at evening or midnight. You got to watch, you got to watch, you got to watch. God didn't tell us. He just didn't tell us and we don't know. So what do we do with it? What do we do with this tidbit of information? What do we do with what he's given us and what he's not given us? I want to remind you that this text is loaded with multiple, multiple in, imperatives. We already mentioned one that in an earlier session. Take heed shows up several times. Take heed, take heed, take heed. That you, because you don't know. And I mentioned it in the last session. It means be discerning, be wise, be clear in your thinking. Don't be confused. Don't be misled by some of those false teachers, obviously. Don't be confused about what, the, what events are going to happen. He was giving them clarity of well, this event and then this event and this event. So learn your prophecy well. Don't be confused. Be sensible. Be reasonable. That in, when we take heed, we don't know when he's coming back. So be sensible. Be reasonable. Don't, don't swing the pendulum. That you, that you, like the Thessalonians later on, that they stopped working, or, or like some of those Millerites, and you know, years ago, that they went up on top of the mountain, and they hung, sat up in trees, and when midnight struck, a number of them jumped out of the trees, thinking he would capture them. Now, be sensible. We don't know. Don't do something rash and foolish. Be sensible. But he gives a second command, and this command shows up multiple times. It's the word in the English, watch. It's the idea that comes from the text, be alert. Be awake. 
uh, something like, you know, don't do what some of you are tempted to do right now. While you're resting in that recliner, don't drift off. Don't become drowsy. The idea is be ready. Be at the edge of your seat. Be ready to get up, to be ready to move. Be busy about the work of God. Watch, watch. He mentions it in verse 33. He mentions it in verse 34. He mentions it in verse 35. He mentions it at the very last word of the chapter. Watch, 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 watch. Be ready, be ready, be engaged because he could come at any singular moment. This truth is mentioned in other passages about prophecy. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the, of the light and sons of the day, and we are not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch. Let us be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day, let us be self-controlled. Putting on constantly that breastplate of faith and love and as the helmet of the hope of salvation. Be engaged. Be ready to do the fight. Be ready to resist Satan in all different aspects. Second Peter. Nevertheless, we, according to his promises, promise, look for these new heavens and the new earth which, in which righteousness will dwell. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent, same word, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that passage about the, uh, the resurrection. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, lie in the grave, be there forever. We shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Oh, the Bible calls us to watch, but it also mentions in this text a third aspect or a third imperative. Verse 33, pray. Pray. And that means that we're to be walking in fellowship with God. That has the idea of don't panic. Don't let the surroundings around you all of a sudden cause you to lose hope, lose faith. Trust in the Lord. Don't give it up. Pray for the ability and the opportunities that we may have to serve the Lord, to get out the gospel, to be able to live at peace with others, to be able to minister, to have that boldness of the Holy Spirit. So you and I look and say, wait a minute, we're living in a time period right now where the coronavirus has upset life, but we need to be watching. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. One of our families, one of their adult children who lives in the Midwest has recently gotten employed here in this region and is planning to move here. But to start the job, had already, just the, the husband, the father, had come into the area and began working. But just recently, he was one of those many whose company cut back, and so he's in a layoff spot right now. And they just found out that their home all of a sudden sold out in the Midwest, real quick, not expected to sell that quickly. And so even this week, they're headed out to that area, pack up things, get ready to move. And I asked the family as I was talking to them, does that mean that he's going to stay out there until everybody is packed up and ready to move and the signing of the house that's going to be a few weeks down? And it was, oh, no, no, no. Coming back into this area as quickly as possible after helping getting everything ready for the move will come back because they told him any day they could call him back to work and he wants to be here. He wants to be here in the area so that as soon as that projected deadline was given a certain date, the next week Monday I believe it was, that he's ready and able whether they go back to work he doesn't know. 
but he wants to be here and ready to get back to that new job as soon as possible. That's being ready. That's watching. There's uh, the missionaries who were with us last week, and we told you the Rudolphs, they mentioned in our presentation, that uh, all of a sudden they can't get back to South Africa. Soonest that they're being told they can get back is April 27th, something like that, if lights are going. But then since then, they, and we were talking, stay here, free lodging in the guest room. The church would be more than gracious in allowing that to happen and assure them of your kindness in that regard. And, uh, and yet when they talked with the travel agent, there's a remote possibility that a flight might, uh, might show up between now and then out of the Atlanta airport. So their thought is, wait a minute, we want to be close so that if all of a sudden we get a notice that says, hey, in three hours, in four hours, in five hours, they're not up here, but they're ready. So they're making their way down towards the south, getting, getting uh, location, lodgings down there where they can minister, but also, more importantly, they can be ready with, if it's between now and then or right at April 27th or the 28th or whatever, when they get the notice from their travel agent that, hey, the flight is ready, they can get there. That's watching. That's being ready. That's that taking heed. That's that praying. That's that watching. That is being ready at a moment's notice. Listen, folk, here's, here's the, the bottom line of this study. No matter how foggy the details of the future. And the believers had a fog. We have a fog in our, in our minds about the future, just like there was one out here this morning that we couldn't see across the fields. Sometimes we can't see exactly what's coming down the road. We're living in a foggy moment right now. We don't know when we're going to get together. We don't know about your schooling. We don't know about you know, getting to the stores. There's a lot of fog. Listen to this. Keep on remembering this thought. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. It is absolutely certain. It will happen. He will return, and it could happen in the rapture aspect or the rapture phase any moment. Any moment. Live as if he could come back. We don't have all the details, but live as if he could come back at any moment. Let me give you this thought. No matter how bad the coming days will get, and that's what he's talking about in this text, remember, Jesus said, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back soon. What that says to me is this, our hope is not in this world getting better. Our hope is not that, oh, wait, the society is just going to keep on improving, improving, and we're going to create a utopia. It won't. It won't by Bible prediction. Our hope, but our hope can never be thwarted or taken away. We know Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus is coming back, That gives us great hope. And we should never allow our circumstances, never allow the situation around us to extinguish this hope. The hope that says when Jesus comes back, he is going to take us to a far better place. A better place that will satisfy, that will provide comfort, that will nourish our souls and our spirits like nothing we dream of. It is that hope that we have that is going to be the most nourishing and fulfilling and the most complete of anything in this life. And we love our vehicles. We love our vacations. We love our education. Those things are great. We love our fellowship with one another. And there's nothing evil or wrong. But they pale in comparison of what the coming of Christ will provide for us. He's coming back. And no matter how bad it gets, he's returning and it's going to get better. Let me give you this third thought. No matter how great the surrounding distractions of the chaos in society and all the difficulties going on around us, remember, I'm coming back. He said, I'm coming back. Therefore, watch for him. Therefore, work for him.
Therefore, walk with him. Day by day, make this your predominant thought and activity. That Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, is coming back. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you doing what you need to be doing today if he were to return? This week's thought, let it be this. Let it be not only trusting the Lord, but remind yourself time and again. Put up something on the fridge. Put on something in your school book. Have, it, have a, a timer just remind you a couple times a day. Jesus is coming again. And it may be today. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to just go through this passage together. Thank you so much for the many hours and labors of some of our staff and and other helpers here to give us assistance to make sure we can do this. I pray, Father, thank you for those who are listening. Thank you for our promises that we have in your word that you're coming back. Help us to live and act and to be ready for that soon return. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.